0: Matthew chapter two, starting in verse thirteen. Now, when they had departed, that's Mary and Joseph and Jesus incidentally, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise,'m sorry, when the wise men had departed, thank you. behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child." To destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning and as we consider Jesus as your son, the true Israel, Father, we pray that um, you would help us to understand who we are in your son and how we often cling to false identities and not to jesus we pray that we would cling to him and as we see him laid out even in your exodus story as we see that picture of him father we pray that your word would be clear and that your holy spirit would work to apply it to our hearts and minds and that you would be exalted in jesus name amen well why do we do the things that we do Hear that? Why do we do the things that we do? We often do so or generally do so because of who we believe we are. That's why we do the things we do, because of who we believe we are. We've embraced a narrative about our lives and our identity, and we live out of that story. You know this because you've experienced your behaviors changing as you've seen your identity shift. Let me give you some examples. When you went from being a elementary school child to being a teenager, suddenly you recognize that behaviors had to change because certain behaviors you participated in as a child, you wouldn't want to participate in as a teenager because those would look silly and childish. In some way, your identity in your mind had changed, and so your behaviors followed suit. And that follows as well when you went to college or graduated from college or got married or had children, your behaviors change. In fact, one of the biggest things I have to work with with young husbands and especially young fathers is now that they have a new identity as a married man or as a father, behaviors are going to follow suit in the change. They know that, but they don't always know which behavior should change. So we have to talk about that. Your identity shifts in some way, and so does your behavior. Further, you know how inappropriate it can look when someone is having an identity crisis. Nothing looks more pathetic than the identity crisis of the 25-year-old male who's standing on the sideline of his high school football team wearing his high school letterman's jacket, right? Except, except the identity crisis of the 50-year-old guy who's sporting a newly dyed comb-over while he drives around trolling in his new sports car. That one looks worse. And we're a people hungry for an identity. We try to structure... Our identities are around all sorts of behaviors or roles in life, don't we? Whether it's the young moms who are structuring their identity around being a mom, or the young men who are structuring their identity around a career or maybe athletics, or whether it's people building their identity upon their sexual preferences, the fact is that we're a people living out of an identity and often searching for an identity. And my point is that we all know that it's true that who we believe we are dictates how we live our lives. And the fact of the matter is we all have identity amnesia. In other words, we're constantly forgetting who we are and striving to be somebody else. And unbelievers live in a persistent, constant state of forgetting who they are and striving to be someone else. They live in a constant state of identity denial. They don't want to be the creature of their creator. Believers, however, are often not a whole lot better, are we? We forget all the time who we are in Christ. We constantly try to find our identity in our spouses, in our kids, in our jobs, in our success, in our possessions, in our power, in our knowledge, in our reputations, and we miss out on the rest that is to be found, the rest that is to be found in finding our identity in Jesus. And God knows that we forget who we are you know that don't don't you he knows we forget who we are and so in his grace he's made one of the central themes of scripture this theme of remembering who we are in him and we see this most poignantly really in the history of israel yeah i don't know if you guys are aware of this but the history of israel takes up the vast majority of the bible in fact of the old testament specifically in fact if you look at Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 looks almost like a prelude setting up, now let's turn to Abraham and these Jews. And we're going to work with them from that point, Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the Old Testament. And then when the Messiah comes, he comes as the Messiah to who? Israel. And it's this history of Israel that we see played over and over again. And one of the rain, main reasons Israel receives so much attention is because God shows us through Israel how we will struggle to remember who we are in our relationship to God. Even as Israel struggled to remember who they were in their relationship to God. And the best place for us to see this struggle is in the book of Exodus. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the book of Exodus. And I want us to look really at two two questions that I want to answer. Here's the first one. Who was Israel? who was Israel in the book of Exodus? And here's the second one. Why is it important that we know who Israel is? Why is that important in the first place? So let's look at the first question. Who was Israel? And we really see four things that we learn about Israel that I want to look at. So there are four things about Israel we learn, four facets of really who they are. And here's the first one. Israel is God's chosen son. Israel is God's chosen son. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, and while you're there, and I'm going to come back to Matthew 2, don't worry. While you're there in Exodus 4, just just don't read it yet. Just hold on for a minute. Because what I want to do is I want to give you a little historical background to bring us to the point where we are in Exodus 4, where we're reading. Here's the the story, the background. Here's the back story to we're going to read in Exodus 4. Adam and Eve were created in the garden by God. They were the first man and woman created. And they sinned, and they were kicked out of the garden. And in the midst of God cursing them, he also made a promise. It was actually a curse on Satan, but a promise for man. And the promise was that the seed of the woman's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. In some way, he's going to be harmed in the crushing of the head of the serpent because the serpent has led Adam and Eve astray. In other words, God is telling Satan, I'm declaring war on you. And I'm going to send a man through the woman who's going to crush you, Satan. And he's going to be the hope of mankind. That's the very beginning of the story. And then you see that story being traced out a bit as we wonder who this man is and through whom he's going to come. And we watch this line build through Genesis 1 through 11. And then in Genesis 12, as God is sort of given us the backstory the creation and what's happening he's kind of given us this prelude or this introduction to the rest of what's going to come because in genesis 12 all of a sudden all of our attention focuses on this one pagan man named abraham and god focuses his attention in on abraham and he comes to abraham and he makes a covenant with abraham and he says abraham it's through you and your seed that i'm going to undo all that was done in the curse that i'm going to bless not only you and your seed, but all the nations through you. And then we see the story of Abraham play out. And we see even God as he's covenanting with Abraham in Genesis 15, tell Abraham, hey, so you know there's coming a day when your people are going to be enslaved to another nation. Genesis 15, he talks about this. They're going to be enslaved for over 400 years by another nation. And that day's coming, but they're going to leave stronger than they came into that nation. And then the story continues as Abraham gives birth to Isaac. And the covenant goes to Isaac. And then Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And the covenant goes to Jacob. And then Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. And Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, becomes a leading man in Egypt, really second to the Pharaoh. And Israel comes to Egypt during the midst of a famine. And when they come to Egypt during the midst of the famine, they live there and they settle there. And Joseph, one of the brothers, in a sense, of of the 12 tribes of Israel, joseph is there and all is well for israel in egypt but over time joseph and his family dies off and the jews begin to multiply in the land and the pharaoh becomes paranoid he becomes paranoid that potentially the jews will overthrow him and so you know conspiracy theories against the jews taking over the world didn't just start in the 20th century they existed all the way back there as Pharaoh was concerned about it. As this conspiracy theory had launched. And so, Pharaoh begins to enslave them. It's one of the things Pharaoh does. But not only does he enslave them, but Pharaoh also says, I want to kill the, the, the sons, the male children, the small ones, the infants. When they're born, they need to be put to death. And after hundreds of years And being in slavery and having their children put to death and the people of Israel forgetting who they are in the Lord, they begin to remember and cry out to him and ask for salvation from the oppression and slavery they're with under under Pharaoh. And we see that God hears that at the end of Exodus 2 in verse 23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so God sends this man, Moses, to redeem them, to save them, to rescue them. And we pick up in the story where God is telling Moses, told Moses, you're going to go to Egypt, and you're going to tell the Pharaoh to let my people, Israel, go. And Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. And you're going to do miracles, and he's still not going to listen to you. But I still want you to go and tell him. And look at verse 21 of chapter 4. We picked that up. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before the Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, is my firstborn son. Catch that. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So essentially what God is saying here to Pharaoh is, Pharaoh, you'd better give me my son Israel, my firstborn son, or or I'll kill your son. And what's fascinating about the language that God uses here is he's referring to Israel as his firstborn son. And the reason he uses that language is to let Moses and the rest of the Israelites know that while they may have forgotten God, God has not forgotten the promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God always remembers his promise. And while they may have forgotten him, God is saying, listen, I'm coming to remind you of who you are in relationship to me. You, O Israel, are my firstborn son, and all the promises I gave to your forefathers are still yours. I haven't forgotten you, and so I've come to remind you of who you are. And you see, what God wanted his people to know is that they're not slaves. Regardless of what anybody else might say, regardless of what Pharaoh might say, regardless of what it might look like, they are not slaves. They are God's people, and as God's people, they are his sons. And to make it even more radical, God called them his firstborn sons. And most of us aren't familiar with the importance of the firstborn son. But the firstborn son in this culture is what the, is called the primogenitor, the primogenitor. That's, that's the, there's a law with regard to the primogenitor, the firstborn. And the law was that all, the firstborn son, all the inheritance was his. And why was all the inheritance of the family given to the firstborn son? It was given to the firstborn son because in that culture, the most important thing was the honor of the family name. And if you take and divide the inheritance or the family wealth up between your children, then it waters down the honor of the family name, the wealth of the family. But if you invest it all in the firstborn son, then he becomes the benefactor for the other children. All the wealth stays together and the family name is exalted, it's honored. And so the firstborn son was loved and honored and cherished above all of the other sons and daughters because he was the heir. He was getting everything. He was the center of the family's affection. And what God is telling him is, them is this. He's telling Israel that's how he sees them. He prizes them. He cherishes them. He loves them. And he's willing to kill for them. And so God wants them to rest in their identity as his firstborn son. He doesn't want them to find their identity in what other people say about them. He doesn't want them to try and find their own identity apart from him. He says, rest in your identity as my prized and loved and cherished firstborn son because that's who you are. See, God wants the exact thing for you believers this morning because we are God's firstborn sons in Jesus. That's why the apostle John can say in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. But is that how you see yourself? Is that where you find your identity? Listen, if you seek your identity anywhere else, if you seek to create your own identity rather than resting in the one God has given you in Jesus, that false identity will destroy you. It will crush you. Because when you fail to live up to the ideal, I want you to hear this, when you fail to live up to the ideal that your identity demands from you, your identity will give you no grace. It will haunt you the rest of your life. When you fail to be the mom you thought you were. Or when your children fail to be the children you hoped for. Or when your marriage fails to be the marriage you always dreamed of. Or when you as a single person fail to finally catch that spouse you always thought you should have. Or when your ministry doesn't go as planned. Or when your business doesn't succeed. Or when you lose the wealth you've accumulated because the financial system collapses. Or when your health fails you. Or your athletic ability leaves you and fades. Or your beauty fades with it. You will be crushed under the weight of your own loss of identity. But Jesus says to you, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the burden of trying to prop up your own identity, apart from Jesus, is heavy. And it will crush you. So first of all, we see that Israel was God's chosen son, and they needed to know that. They needed to know that they're God's chosen son. Second, we see that Israel was God's redeemed people. God's redeemed people. Now, Now, here's the story. God begins to work through Moses as he goes to Pharaoh. And nine different plagues happen. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and not let Israel go, even through all these plagues. And he won't let Israel go. And so God says to them, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring one last plague, the 10th plague. And there's something you Israelites need to understand. When this 10th plague comes, it's going to come for the firstborn sons in all of Egypt, and that includes your firstborn sons, unless unless you put the blood of the Passover lamb on your doors. And if you put the blood of the Passover lamb on your doors, then I will pass over your house. And so we read about this in Exodus chapter 12, because God is going to keep his promise to Pharaoh that he made in Exodus 4. If you don't let my firstborn son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be before you you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat of it with the belt with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. The reason they're fully clothed when they eat it is they're ready to leave Egypt. Eat this meal. Get dressed for this meal when you're going to eat it because you're leaving Egypt. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, the point of this story is that God has already unleashed these plagues, but now he's turning to this 10th plague because Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel go. So God makes on good on his promise to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son and all the firstborn sons throughout Egypt. And he's not only going to kill the Egyptian ones, but the Israelite sons. Now why is that? Why would God threaten his people with this plague when they're in the middle of being oppressed? Well, the reality is this, that even though the Israelites were oppressed, they were still just as sinful as the Egyptians. They'd forgotten God for generations. They were still just as guilty before God as the Egyptians were. And so God tells the Israelites, it's is going to affect you too. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy says there's a way for the Israelites to be saved, and he reveals that way to them. He tells them each household is to take an unblemished male lamb that's a year old and at twilight to kill the lamb. And then they're supposed to take the blood of that lamb And they're supposed to put that they've slaughtered and smear it on the doorposts of their houses. And then they're to go into their houses, dress like they're ready to leave Egypt, cook and eat a meal together. So they're well fed before they journey off. Now think about this. All through Egypt on that night, every house had either a dead lamb in it or a dead firstborn son. Every house. And why do they have to kill an innocent lamb and shed its blood over the doorpost so that God would, strike, would not strike their firstborn dead? Why do they have to do that? What is God communicating here to his people? God's highlighting the necessity of a substitute in order for his people to be redeemed because he wants you to know you're my redeemed people. But you're redeemed a particular way. It isn't by putting together your own good works that you get redeemed. You're redeemed through the blood of the lamb. In order for God to be just in punishing sin and gracious in keeping his promise to to Israel is if he gives the substitute to them to punish in their place. It's the only way he can do it. That's why the lamb's being slaughtered and why it's blood being shed. And that's why verse 13 says that the blood of the lamb is a sign for the Israelites. It's a sign that they have a substitute. That someone has died in their place. Further, notice that the lamb has to be unblemished. The lamb has to be perfect to take their place because a blemished lamb is an unfit substitute. And their identity, here's the thing, their identity as a people is to be found in those who have been redeemed from the wrath of God because a substitute was slain in their place. They were God's redeemed people. That was their identity. So the second facet of it, not only is chosen son, but there is redeemed people by the blood of the lamb. And I hope we're applying this to ourselves. Sovereign grace, we know that the, la- the blood of lambs and goats and bulls doesn't remit sin. Their blood doesn't. That all points forward to Jesus, Through the shedding of his blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that we're saved, that we're redeemed, where people have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The question is, is that where you look for your identity? When the flesh and the world and the devil remind you of your sins, do you rest in the fact that your sins are covered by the shed blood of the lamb? Or do you look to yourself to try to pay the penalty for your own sins by punishing yourself or guilting yourself or promising yourself that you'll do better next time? I'll clean up my act. So you can't pay the penalty. You need a substitute. And by God's grace, we have one. So you rest in your identity as a redeemed son of God. So Israel is God's chosen son, and Israel is God's redeemed people. Third, Israel is God's rescued people. It says rescued people. Look at Exodus chapter 14. As the story goes on, you know that Israel continues to, they leave the land. Pharaoh says, get out after these kids are killed. So they leave. And they're going, and they go to the edge of the Red Sea where they camp. And they're camping out there, and Pharaoh changes his mind. Because says, why did I just let the base of my economic system go? You understand that. This is the most powerful empire in the world, the most powerful leader in the world at the time, and the base of his economic system just left. His entire slavery system left and went to worship God, and he reconsiders. Why did I let them go? I'm going to go after them. And so he pursues them, and the Israelites see Pharaoh coming. And when they see Pharaoh coming, they begin to panic, and God saves them. Look at Exodus 14 and verse 10. As They're by the Red Sea when Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't it, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see the identity crisis that Israel's having? They're failing to remember their God's chosen son who's keeping his promises to them and that they're redeemed by God. And that he's done all these miraculous things including providing a substitute to redeem them and they're failing to remember any of it and they're saying, why did you take us out of Egypt? It was easier in Egypt. Following the Lord is tough. This is difficult. This costs me. Why did you take me out of that? You don't remember being in slavery? We don't care, it's better than dying here by the river by the sea. And so here's what happens. And Moses said to the people, "Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." And what happens here? God parts the Red Sea. The people, Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the Egyptians follow them in. God closes the Red Sea and Pharaoh's whole army is drowned. That's what we believe happened. This is not a miracle that that we're as Christians sort of surprised by or stunned by from the perspective that it seems like that's a little too far fetched for God to do. Again, I'll come back to the basic premise. If you posit a God who created all things it's not very hard for him to part oceans or seas is it you know you guys ever heard the story of how critics try to deal with this a lot of critics try to see, say that this was the reed sea you guys ever heard of that oh this couldn't have been the red sea it was clearly a textual error this is the reed sea you guys heard of the reed sea it's about six inches deep and that's how they that's how they crossed it it was easy right so there, there is a story of a young man who was in Sunday school class and he came out of class and his dad asked him, how was Sunday school today? And the kid says, amazing, dad. He says, really amazing? Yeah, dad, the Sunday school lesson was amazing. God is amazing. And the dad said, why? He goes, well, the Sunday school t- teacher told us that, that God didn't part the Red Sea. That they actually, that was a textual error and it was actually the Reed Sea. And it was only six inches of water they went across. And the dad said, son, well, how could that be amazing? And the son said, God drowned Pharaoh's whole army in six inches of water. That's amazing. Anyway, so you guys get it. The point here is, is real clear and simple. God rescues his people. God rescues his people and he does so through, does so through judgment. God is a God who doesn't leave his people in slavery. He doesn't allow them to be conquered by their enemies. He rescued Israel and the good news is he rescued us as well. You see like the Israelites we were once slaves not to Pharaoh but to the flesh and the world and the devil and whatever we felt like doing we did and whatever the world told us to do we did and whatever the devil was doing we wanted to join in but God has delivered us. He freed us from our slavery to the flesh and the world and the devil. And he made us a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So that now we have hearts that want to please him and love him and leave our old ways behind. We are those who have been rescued by God. But is that how you see yourself? Do you see that your identity is as a slave who's been set free? Or do you still find, in your, find your identity in your sins? Don't get me wrong, we all still struggle with sin. and We all still commit sin, but that's not our identity. You hear that? I, let, me, let me say something about a thing like Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not the big anti-AA guy, so don't get me wrong when I say this. But the one thing that bugs me with Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all the other th- things out there is the claim that I'm always an alcoholic as if it's my identity. And it's not true. You're redeemed rescued son of God who happens to struggle with alcohol or who has struggled with alcohol. But your identity is not your sin or your slavery to sin. You guys clear about that? It's not who you are. And we all struggle with sin. We all still commit sin, but it's not our identity. I'm not that guy like I hear a lot of guys tell me they are. I just, I just look at porn. I can't do anything about it. That's just me. I can't stop. It's not who you are. That's your sin. It's not your identity. And if you're looking to Christ, your identity is as a chosen son, redeemed and rescued. Live like it. You see, your new identity is as a son who's been redeemed from slavery to sin and given a new heart that's free to worship the one true God because he rescued you from the pit. That's who you are. So Israel was God's chosen son. God's redeemed and rescued people. And fourthly, fourth point, we see that Israel was God's covenant. People, they're God's covenant people. Now, let me fast forward you in the story. They go through the wilderness for some time, and and Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. And they go to Mount Sinai, and God covenants with them. Not a covenant that gets rid of Abraham's covenant, but a covenant that adds to Abraham's covenant. That makes them a theocratic people, a nation with civil laws, a sacrificial system, and the moral law of God all given to them he creates a nation state out of them and that's part of the covenant he makes with moses and israel here in in an attempt to fulfill his covenant he made with abraham that through abraham's seed would eventually come the savior the messiah jesus and part of the process of doing that was making a nation state out of israel in which he showed much of who he is as God and what he's doing in his Redeemer and what his plan is to bring the ultimate kingdom of God in which the ultimate theocracy would happen, where Jesus would rule and reign on the earth forever. And so we see this story go unfold as they get there and they're given the Ten Commandments and you all know about the sins they're committed, etc. But in Exodus 24, we read about the confirmation of this covenant. And I want you to hear this. Because it's important to know that they're God's covenant people. Verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. See, Aaron is the brother of Moses who is the priest. And Nadab and Abihu's sons are coming. And the 70 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord is spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord and Moses took half of the blood and put it in the in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people and they said they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, here's what you need to understand. They've been given this law. They said, we'll fulfill it. Though that law are the stipulations of the covenant they've been given. There's a covenant, an agreement that's been made unilaterally by God, but is a two-party covenant in the sense that there are stipulations that the people are to keep. And when a covenant is made, that covenant is made with blood. Now, we're kind of Freaked out a little bit by all this throwing around of all this blood. What's this all about? But they cut a covenant. And when they cut a covenant, they used blood. And they cut the animals and they threw the blood out. And here's what that says God's saying, if I fail to keep my end of the covenant, may that blood be upon me. And if you fail to keep that in your end of the covenant, may that blood be upon you. And so this blood of the covenant is shed. And they're in this covenant relationship with God. Then Moses. Verse nine, and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel, went up, and this ought to stun you, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. See, if you see the Lord, you die, and in some way they're seeing a vision of him. And they're not being killed because of the covenant that's been made with them. You're my chosen sons. You're redeemed. You're rescued. I've covenanted with you. And now they see him. And then what's interesting is get this tack on at the end that most of us just read right over like a breath and don't pay any attention to. They beheld God and ate and drank. What? There's God. Let's eat right? Let's have something to drink. What's that about? Why do they eat and drink? When they can see God and live, and then they say, let's have some lunch, right? Doesn't that seem like a sort of a, a strange response to seeing God? You think, well, it's time to fast, right? It's time to stay away from any kind of food. No, they see the Lord, and they eat, and they drink. And what's the author of the narrative telling us? When you eat and drink with someone, you're sharing communion with them, You have close fellowship with them. And the author is telling us that they saw the Lord, and not only were they not killed, but they had close fellowship with him. He invited them to eat and drink with him, to be the guests at his house. They have communion and fellowship with God. Here's the incredible blessing they see. We're God's covenant people, and we now have access to him. That's not just true for Israel, it's true for us in Christ. We have communion and fellowship with God Almighty. And here's the question, is that where you find your identity? As God's redeemed and rescued and covenant child who can draw near to him and know him and be known by him. See, there's no greater privilege in life than that. So is that where you find your identity? Or do you seek your identity primarily in your relationship with others? Always concerned with what they think of you, or if they like you, or if they respect you. You see, you're a fool if you try to find your identity in human relationships, because no human relationship can truly satisfy you if you don't have an intimate relationship with the Lord. So that's who Israel was. They were God's chosen, redeemed, rescued, covenant people. That's who they were. But we still have to answer the question, why is that important to know? That about Israel. Why does God fill so much scripture with Israel's history? And here's what we learn from the author of Hebrews God did so because Israel was a type, a shadow, a picture that was meant to point us to Jesus. Really, Israel was meant to show us just how much we need Jesus to come. Israel shows us that our God is the one who graciously chooses to adopt sons, He is the God who redeems those trapped in slavery to sin. He is the God who rescues his people from the world and the flesh and the devil and the certainty of divine justice. He is the God who covenants with his people to be in an eternal communion with them. And he does all these things through Jesus. See, God chose Jesus to be his son. Adam failed in his call to be God's son, didn't he? Israel failed in their call to be God's son. We fail in our call to be God's son. And instead of finding their identity or us finding our identity in God choosing us as his sons, we sought and they sought our identity in ourselves and other things, and we ran into sin. But Jesus was the perfect son of God that they failed to be and that we failed to be. He lived perfectly in line with his identity as God's son. And that's why we see what we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. So turn back to Matthew 2 because you're wondering, why did you read that passage? Or you may have forgotten that I did by now, in which case, which case you're the best kind of listeners, right? Because you don't challenge me at all. Why? Well, no, actually, that's the worst kind. Okay. Why did you read that passage? Verse 13 of Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold. Now that's the wise men departing. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child, that's Jesus and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now notice, Jesus is born, and they're going to Egypt. Why? And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So flee to Egypt, because Herod wants to destroy this child. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, here's what ought to throw you for a loop, if you're reading this, and ought to bring you back to what Matthew's point is here in telling us a story. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What? That's a quotation of Hosea 11.1. Hosea is not giving a prophecy in Hosea 11.1. He is a prophet, but he's not giving a prophecy there. He's talking, Hosea is talking, about what God has already done for his son, Israel, which we read about in Exodus chapter 4. Hosea is commenting on that, saying, listen, God called his son out of Egypt. Israel. He called them out of Egypt. And now what Matthew does is Matthew says, listen, there's a deeper meaning here that even Hosea didn't understand. Hosea was prophesying and didn't know it. And so you know, Jesus in his life after his birth, because of the threat of death coming from Herod, had to flee with his family to Egypt. He stayed there till Herod died. He returned so that it would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. And what's the author Matthew telling us? What is he being inspired by the Holy Spirit as an apostle telling us? He's telling us that all that you read about Israel being my son, that was all pointing you to who my true son is, Jesus. It's all pointing you to him. He is my son. And Israel was living out a picture of my son for you. And Jesus my son. And Matthew is saying to you as an apostle, you know who it is you're reading about when you read this gospel. You're not just reading about some random dude who was born in Bethlehem. You're reading about the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the true Israel. That's who you're reading about. He is everything Adam was meant to be and failed to be. He was everything that Israel was meant to be and failed to be. He is everything that you and I were meant to be and failed to be in our place. And Matthew traces that out because the very next story is Herod killing all these children, these young males. And what do we learn about Pharaoh doing to the young males in Egypt? And what do we find out is that this is then quoted by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, referring to the exile, pointing us to the fact that Jesus is living out the history of Israel in some case. Pointing to the fact that all of Israel's history was pointing to him in some way. And this gets carried through because then what does Jesus do in John chapter 3? After he's returned, he's living in Nazareth, he goes out in ministry, and John the Baptist is out baptizing, and Jesus goes where? Into the water to be baptized. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Israel? Israel went into the Red Sea to be baptized. And you say, did you just make that up? No, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10, that going to the Red Sea was the baptism of Moses. And Jesus goes into the water as Israel went into the Red Sea, and Jesus is baptized, and what does God say of him in his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus comes up out of the water and goes where? Into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And what does that remind you of? And what does he then quote over and over as he's dealing with the temptations? He quotes the things that is, he quotes Deuteronomy, the things that Israel should have said when they were failing to live up to the temptations. Jesus was succeeding where they were failing. And then what happens? Jesus goes up onto a mountain. And who else did that? Moses! And what did Moses do on the mountain? He brought the Ten Commandments. And what does Jesus preach about in the Sermon on the Mount? The Ten Commandments. And what's being said in this picture that Matthew's laying out is that Jesus is everything. He's the true Son. He's the true Israel. Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. What happens the night before His death? They have the Passover Supper. And He says that the bread and the cup are about Him and His death. And his shed blood He's the true son, the true Israel, the true Passover lamb, and it was his shed blood that would redeem his people. The blood of, the, of a lamb, no matter how spotless, was, the, was never going to save you from your sins, it was always a pointer to Jesus. That's why Jesus had to come. He was the only human qualified, qualified to lay down his life, because Jesus was the only spotless, perfect human to ever live. He was the only human of whom it could be said, "Behold the Lamb of God." takes away the sins of the world. And on the cross, Jesus the true passover lamb was sacrificed. He experienced the wrath of God Almighty so that you and that you and I deserve for our sins against him, his blood was shed so ours didn't have to be. And Jesus brought about the true exodus, didn't he? Moses delivering the Israelites out of Egypt was just a picture of the spiritual exodus that Jesus would bring about by his life and death and burial and resurrection. Moses rescued the Israelites from physical to bondage to, Israel, to Pharaoh, and Jesus rescues us from spiritual bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus was the true covenant keeper. Adam failed to keep the covenant. Israel failed to keep the covenant, but Jesus didn't fail to keep the covenant. He even paid for Adam and Israel's failure to keep to the covenant. Jesus kept the covenant perfectly. He told the Father, all this you've commanded me I will do, and he actually did it. And he did that in your place, and he did that in my place, and his perfect track record of covenant keeping is now given to us. See, God sees us perfectly keeping the covenant because of Jesus. It's all about him. This is who Jesus is. This is who we celebrate, not just at Christmas and Easter, but every Sunday, and hopefully who you remember every day of your life. He is God's chosen son, the covenant keeper, the redeemer, and the rescuer. He is all of it. And in Him, through faith in Him, when you trust in Him and look to Him and away from yourself and you find your identity there and not here or out there in the world, then you are united to Him through faith and you know who you are in Him and you rest in Him and you go and tell the world about Him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that You would work in us so that we would not forget our identity In Jesus, they'd not forget that He is our hope, and that through faith in Him, He is He is our older brother, and we are adopted sons and His younger brothers in Him. That we are firstborn sons, heirs to all of Your promises in Christ. That we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and rescued from slavery to sin, and that we are covenant keepers in Christ. Covenant children, may we live in delight in Jesus. He's done all of it. Father, we recognize we've done nothing. We've only received your gracious gift in Christ. We pray that we would walk in remembrance of that. And Father, we pray that for those people who are here in a perpetual state of denial of where true identity is to be found, unbelievers in Christ, facing your condemnation, Father, that you would open their eyes to see that Jesus is their hope. They would look to him and be saved. Pray you would do this by the power of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.